Mum Talk Series 5 is supported by Bugaboo. 20 years ago, Bugaboo started a stroller revolution, changing the game with innovative products that had at their heart the desire to make parents' lives easier. Bugaboo continued to invent, develop, test and manufacture truly revolutionary products. Made to use every day, designed to last a lifetime, there's a Bugaboo pram, pushchair or stroller to suit every family's needs. Bugaboo know that it's not always easy, but that it's always worth it. They get that you are a parent and a person, and with their extraordinary products, you've got this. Visit bugaboo.com forward slash mumtalk. Hello and welcome to Mum Talk Series 5, hosted by myself, Emma Jolin, mum to Amandine, who was born in September 2018. On this podcast, I share my journey of literally having no idea what I am doing, from pregnancy to life now with a baby. Through the podcast, I am joined by not only incredibly knowledgeable guests, some experts in their field, but also mums and dads sharing their experience of pregnancy and parenthood. You can trust in Mum Talk to be honest, real and informative and provide plenty of nod along and me too moments. Maybe you have a cup of tea with your feet up or perhaps your jogging shoes on and you're off for a stroll. Whatever and wherever you may be, thank you for listening and enjoy being part of today's conversation. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mum Talk, Series 5, Episode 2, and I am chatting to you from France. So this week's episode focuses on parental mental health and relationships. I have a fantastic expert joining me in just a moment to talk through those topics which have been on my list to bring up on the podcast for a really long time. They are huge topics in their own right and To cover in one episode was quite a feat with this expert. I feel like we have just skimmed the surface. However, what I hope this podcast does is open up the conversation for us to go on and talk about relationships, etc. as we go on with the podcast. But first, I wanted to share with you our travel journey out here to France because I feel like every time we come to France, it's so very, very different. Amandine is always a different age when we come. For those of you who don't know, my husband's French. We come out to see his parents about six times a year. And yeah, Amandine's a different age, so it's very different. So Amandine is one year and two weeks, and I have to say I was dreading this flight. The flight was seven o'clock in the evening, so we had to leave home about three o'clock. Luckily for us, she got both of her naps in, so she got her morning nap and her afternoon nap in, which, as you know, she loves her routine, so that helped a huge amount, meant she got some really good sleep. But the journey for us is about eight hours long, Once we arrive in Bordeaux, we have two hours worth of driving, two, two and a half hours worth of driving to get to the house. At the airport, from arrival, we really, I have to say, felt like (laughs) that we had this down, this trip. The travel was so, so easy. And I truly believe, and I know that... It's easy for me to say this because Bugaboo are sponsoring the podcast, but I do believe it is really down to the fact that we had the Bugaboo Ant. One of the reasons that we had the Bugaboo Ant, it was so easy to travel around the airport, on and off the plane, to the car, from the car, 
it made my life so much easier. So we arrived in the car park, which isn't really that close to Bristol Airport, which is where we fly from. We had to get a bus. And from the get-go, I just popped out the bugaboo ant and put Amandine straight in it. And she was so happy. She had her own space. She was a lot cooler. I often find around airports, I find it quite difficult to keep her cool. They're quite warm, aren't they? And if they're feeding off your body heat, then they can get quite hot. And I always have to strip Amandine down. And when she has a full nappy, oh, you have to go and change. And it's a bit of a nightmare. But with the bugaboo ant, it was so easy. And also the biggest thing is it wasn't physically tiring for me this time. I find when I've traveled with Amandine before, having her on my front, my backpack on my back, I'm physically exhausted. Now I was able to put my rucksack, which had my laptop in, all Amandine's stuff in, some food, all underneath in the large underseat basket. And I also had some of her toys and bits and pieces and easily accessible items in the rear luggage basket and that's always accessible even when you fold the pram down and that was game-changing. I have said that was one of the main things that I loved in the interlude which you'll hear a little bit later obviously because Bugaboo is sponsoring the podcast but one thing I also loved was you can change the seat to face the world so to face out and then also to face me and I'll tell you how that really really made a huge difference a little bit later on but when we were going around the airport Amandine was super happy we went and got some food and she obviously didn't eat anything (laughs) that I had bought for her I bought her some little bits from M&S I what did I get her I got her some like bean um falafel-y type things in like with a carrot puree and I also got her some I got her a tuna sandwich because she likes tuna I got her a boiled egg and spinach um but yeah no none of it she wasn't after any of it she didn't even love the um organics corn puffs that I always get for her and she always flattens and loves them and she didn't even want those so she doesn't have her appetite at the moment you may have remembered on last week's podcast I mentioned about her having her one-year jabs and they say that the MMR which is one of the four yes four jabs that they have can release a bit of the measles um part of the jab five to ten days in now Amandine had them on Monday we traveled on Monday so that was just prime time for this to start happening and the whole day she didn't have her appetite um so it wasn't a surprise to me and I thought you know I'm going to be feeding her loads on the actual aircraft anyway to stop her ears from popping I'm still breastfeeding in the evening and in the mornings so that was really really easy for me to do So we got called to our gate and I have to say I was feeling very fancy strolling around with the bugaboo ant stroller and it was so easy to get to the gate and the lady actually said, God, I haven't seen one of those before, isn't it brilliant? And I was like, yes, and it goes into the overhead locker. (laughs) It was really funny. She was like, wow, that's so brilliant. Gosh, you wouldn't think it, would you? It's such a good size for going in the overhead locker. Anyway, When we got called to go down to the aircraft, I managed to um, put it back into its um, overhead locker size, fold it down in, I reckon, about 15 seconds. I reckon. I didn't actually time it, but it was really, really quick because I have it down now. It's very, very easy to do and super, super simple. And then I just popped it into the overhead locker. It's really light. It's incredibly light. And I just popped it into the overhead locker and that was it. So I... 
breastfed Amandine on the takeoff and she actually managed to pretty much go in and out of sleep for the whole flight. She was an absolute dreamboat. I actually think one of the reasons she was a dreamboat, could have gone either way though, was because she had a bit of a temperature. Again, I think it was down to the MMR um, and the measles starting to come out a little bit. Also, the plane's air conditioning whilst we were on the ground wasn't working, so the plane was actually really, really hot. But we managed to keep her very mellow, aside from when she trapped her fingers in whilst playing with the tray in the back of the seat um but we distracted her with a little bit of booba i think it's called booba booba bumba booba it's a really really cute um old school animated it's 1976 i think it was or it was when hendrick was born anyway and um a uh, really cute like teddy bear animation not teddy bear it's not a teddy bear it's uh, like a woodland bear a bear a bear animation um, and very, very cute. Anyway, she got rid of all of her tears and went on to the boob and everything was fine. And we only arrived 15 minutes late, so that was good. But by the time we had arrived, she was exhausted. She'd just fallen asleep and she didn't want to wake up. Obviously, I had to wake her up to get her off the plane, but I put her, again, straight back down into the bugaboo ant whilst we were queuing for passport control and she pretty much went straight to sleep. It was incredible. Now, the bugaboo ant lies um, completely flat. You can face it towards you, so you can see absolutely everything, pull their brilliant canopy all the way over, and she'd be none the wiser. It was completely black in there. It was brilliant, and when Hendrik and I arrive in Bordeaux, Hendrik goes to get the car. He whizzes straight off to get the car. And I stay and get the luggage. Now, we don't have much luggage. We had a suitcase and we had the car seat. But the car seat bag is huge because we have to take our Isofix base with us with the car seat, um, which isn't ideal. But Hendrik shoots me a trolley from outside and I grab the trolley went over and got the bits and pieces. Now imagine me pushing a trolley with all our bags and the bugaboo ant with Amandine in it. Now I knew it was possible because Hendrik said to me, this is never going to be possible. You're never going to be able to do it. You'll never be able to push two things. I was like, yes, but no, I will because I've used the bugaboo ant before and I know how easy it is to pull along or push along. So I had the Trolley in my left hand, pushing forward, and I was pulling the bugaboo ant behind me. And if you follow me on Instagram, on Emma Jolan, which is where I post kind of the day-to-day -day stuff, you will see me, when Hendrik found me after getting the keys to the car, you'll see me strolling up towards the main terminal building, completely fully loaded in both hands, with the trolley and the bugaboo ant. And I really felt like I was nailing it but I also knew because I'd used the bugaboo ant before and I was so confident that I could do it and I was like yes I've got this I've so got this but that didn't last that really <laughs> didn't last because after our car journey when we got home oh my goodness we arrived at Hendrick's house and we kind of knew this was going to happen because at midnight it was still 25 degrees outside and we're thinking oh god the house is going to be boiling Went into Amaldine's room and it was 27 degrees, 27 degrees. So we tried to put her down pretty much naked in the cot. Anyway, didn't work at all. She lost her shizzle. So then imagine this as well. We were 
dangling, well, trying to get the cot downstairs by the staircase. It wouldn't fit because we built it upstairs, obviously. So then we dangled the cot over the balcony. It's a really old um, French farmhouse, so it has like this rickety balcony. So I tried to not break the balcony whilst we were dangling this cot over. Luckily, it's only an Ikea one, so it's really easy. Hendrik grabbed it from down the bottom and then we shot it through the window of the, the room where Amaldine and I were going to sleep and I decided to sleep in that room with her. So I put her down, this must have been like 2.30 by this point. She was so, so good. She wasn't losing her shizzle, she was just, you know, seeing the cuddly toys that she hadn't seen in ages and she was being so good. And put her down at 2.30 in the morning, I went to sleep. She woke up at 3 a.m. pretty much screaming. I think she was just really scared. She didn't really know where she was and Oh, it was horrible. So I, she wouldn't stop either. So I picked her up out of the cot, brought her into bed with me, and then basically slept for the rest of the night with her on me. And you know what? It was lovely. It was really nice. I had no issue with it whatsoever. I didn't really sleep because I was terrified of her falling out of the bed. But it was just nice to have lots and lots of cuddles, and I knew she really needed it, and I was just more than happy to do that. Tonight, she's gone down like a dream boat. She was so tired anyway, because we went to the beach today. Um, she We slept in this morning until maybe like 8.30. And then her naps were a little bit... Well, her first nap was really quite late. And when we woke up, we headed to the beach. With the intention that she would wear her nice new wetsuit. She would take a play on Hendrik's surfboard with Hendrik. Maybe have a little paddle around because it was really flat. There were hardly any waves. But no, did it happen? Of course not, of course not. So we arrived at the beach, everything going smoothly, got her into her wetsuit, walked on down to to the ocean, and she was not loving it. And I think it was because every time she's been swimming, it's either been peaceful, calm seawater or a swimming pool, not crashing waves. And I think it was the noise. So we were Googling, and apparently babies are born with the fear of noise and the fear of falling. They're the only two fears, which makes complete sense. It was really loud, really noisy. Even though they weren't big waves, it was really noisy. So Hendrik went off to surf. Amandine and I paddled for a bit and then went back up. Took her wetsuit off because it was way too hot. She wasn't going to get in the water. Put her sunsuit on, which absolute godsend. And then went back down and kind of did that a little bit. And we had a great day, great day at the beach. It was really lovely. And then on the way back, of course, we had a danger nap back in the car but she's gone down like an absolute dream tonight so I am so so appreciative of that. One last thing that I forgot to mention on the Bugaboo Ant is we were very kindly given the Bugaboo Ant organizer as well and I have to say if you are in the market for a travel pram and you are purchasing it I would highly recommend purchasing the organizer as well. I think it's $39.95 and it is brilliant you have it right there on top of the handle it attaches to the handle and it's almost like Mary Poppins bag you know it's never ending because if it looks really small it's so big but so compact and you can fit all your passports in your phone in your car keys in your wallet in anything you need quick access to maybe a nappy um, some wet wipes baby's toy, anything you want to be right, right there, right in front of you. We put in our passports, our boarding passes, our phones, and I would highly recommend you looking at that. And on that note, I will leave you with some more key facts on the Bugaboo Ant. 
Bugaboo have launched your greatest travel companion, the brand new Bugaboo Ant Compact Travel Stroller, and it launches nationwide this month. Great things really do come in small packages, and traveling with your child has never been easier. It is so compact that it easily fits into the overhead compartment of a train, numerous airline plane cabins, or into the boot of even the smallest car, all with a striking new bugaboo look and, of course, their usual attention to design and functionality. The Bugaboo Ant has integrated all-wheel suspension, which really does provide a super smooth ride, a reversible and reclining seat that supports the whole weight of your child, while the nimble handling means you can push and steer with one hand. So easy. So small, but mighty. I particularly love the storage space while folded and using the trolley mode feature wheeling through airports and stations. So visit bugaboo.com forward slash mumtalk to learn more and choose the pram, pushchair, stroller, car seat or accessory to suit your lifestyle. All right, let's move on to parental mental health and relationships with Michaela Thomas. So this week on the podcast, I am lucky enough to chat with Michaela Thomas from The Thomas Connection. Now, I am going to ask Michaela to introduce herself and her expertise. Fire away. Well, thank you so much, Emma, for having me, because it's always an honour to be interviewed. Um, Like Emma said, my name is Michaela Thomas, and I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've also founded the private practice, The Thomas Connection. So that's obviously what I do in my professional life, but I think uh, that I wear many hats. So I'm also first and foremost a mum of a of a little one, and he'll be three next month. So he's starting to be less little. Uh, I'm also a wife, so I'm married, and I am also Swedish. So I like to present that because uh, it's it's important to keep in touch with our roots and connect with what we think is important. So. When I think about my business life, I am in that constant sort of juggle of where uh, where do my efforts lie? Is it sort of being a mum? Is it being uh, a businesswoman? So I, I love working with people who also understand that life is full of choices that are difficult to make at times. And that's definitely been the case for me coming into motherhood. Um, I was just taken out in a new therapy room when I was heavily pregnant which my husband had to kit out for me and I had to sit there with FaceTime trying to kind of tell him where to hang their picture frames. Um, and I've been running this business for about five years now. So having a child who's almost three, that's obviously defined a large part of my journey in my business. And because he had lots of challenges when he was born, it has it's really made me reflect a lot on how I want to show up as a mother and how I want to show up in my business. Um, so I hope to talk to you to you all more about that today of the the challenges I faced and how you might be able to take some comfort from that of what helped for me and what helps for a lot of the clients I serve as um, some of you might not know what a clinical psychologist is it's essentially you train uh, at a doctoral level in psychology so understanding the science of the human mind and our behavior and then you can apply that to all sorts of difficulties so some of the things I see in my private practice would be People who are struggling with depression, anxiety, um, feeling stressed, um, feeling worried about something happening to their baby, 
uh, struggling with relationship issues, um, which we're going to dive in deeper to today because I'm a trained couples therapist as well. So I just love working with people who come from all strands of life and kind of facing the difficulties of living life with all the light and the dark moments that we have in, in life. So that's sort of me. I'm I'm a positive, joyful person who also have hard times and painful moments. So I kind of balance those things in my business as well. And I hope we're going to talk more about that today, how hard it is to live this life that makes us human. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for taking the time out to come and talk to us all today. So let's dive straight into it. So the first topic we kind of wanted to talk around was parent mental health. Um, Mm -hmm. Having a baby and bringing a baby into this world is huge. Um, And I actually don't think this topic gets enough airtime. Um, Now, one thing that you I, I read whilst going through um, your website and also listening to you on Komu is your concept of striving for, for perfection um, and softening the should to could. Now, I was hoping you could talk a little bit around this to start us off because I feel like I am literally striving for, for, for perfection <laughs> pretty much every hour of the day <laughs> and never really meeting it. And I... When I was listening to you talking about that, I related so much and I, I, I want others to hear about it. Fantastic. Well, I guess the first thing is to say that you're in good company about that, mm. that we don't want to see perfectionism or the pursuit for perfection as something that's really pathological. We don't want to see that as something that is a condition because it isn't. Um, if you think of perfectionism, it doesn't actually exist in our diagnostic manuals uh, like clinical depression does. So it's not a condition. You don't have this label or oh, I have I have perfectionism. It's a set of behaviors, things we do because we're trying to strive for this uh, idea of perfection. So um, I think it's great that you've done something really vulnerable there and sharing that this is something that affects you in how you show up in your parenting, how you show up in your life, because it affects a lot of us. Uh, And I often talk about how I'm I'm sort of a reformed reformed perfectionist, that I definitely have had those traits and I've definitely have had a lot of those behaviors. And that can really get us into trouble in, in parenthood, because essentially, it's probably the one experience in my life which has been the most imperfect. It's, it's very, very hard to control parenting or parenthood. For it starts already in pregnancy. You know, you can't control when you conceive. You can't control how the baby's growing. You can't control how that pregnancy is going to progress, if you're going to feel sickness or if you're going to be well. You can't control how your labor or your birth is going to go. And you can't control which baby you're going to get. So essentially, for a lot of people who are striving for perfection, the first thing to think about is how do I let go of that sense of control? How do I let go of my need to try to have certainty of all things in life? Because they are just simply, by definition, uncertain. We don't have control. And that can be deeply unsettling for people in pregnancy, starting to kind of perceive what this life will look like, what will the baby be like, and how is my relationship going to be affected by this? We just have so many unknowns when there's that first baby. So people don't understand that our parental mental health, uh, the word for it is, is perinatal, which involves both the pregnancy and the postpartum period, that we can already in pregnancy see symptoms of the postnatal depression, so to speak. So it's really important to to kind of keep an eye on how you're feeling in your pregnancy. 
it is normal and to be expected to have some sense of apprehension and maybe worrying about what's going to happen. But if it's starting to impact on your life to the point where you're struggling to sleep or you, it's kind of all consuming in your thoughts or it's starting to affect your behavior, that people around you are starting to worry about you, um, spending a lot of time and effort preparing for the baby beyond what we kind of think of as normal nesting, mm. then it might be really important to think, is this because I'm striving for this to be perfect? You know, am I, what kind of expectation am I putting on myself, on my partner, if you're in a relationship, um, having this baby and what pressure am I putting on this baby? What, what is the baby going to be like? And I think that's, that's where we think about the first step to trying to let go of that control is to do what you just did, to be vulnerable and to admit that this is something that affects me. I didn't choose this. I didn't choose to have a need for perfection, a need for excellence. It's a lot of those things were laid down for you, not by you. So we might can be aware of our upbringing. So how this has been modeled to us by our parents, how they've acted around putting expectation or pressure on us. Um, so it's a lot of this is just done for over a long period of time and it might all come to its head when we come into pregnancy and parenthood. But looking backwards, you might have had these issues long before. Mm. So if you if you're struggling with issues around perfection, that's not going to get better from having a baby. Let me put it that way. <laughs> if you struggle with issues around sort of feeling anxious or thinking about worst case scenarios, that's not going to get better from having a baby. So if you have pre-existing issues around feeling anxious or low at times, then pregnancy and childbirth and the postnatal period through all the sleep deprivation can really exacerbate that. So it's rare for these things to come sort of out of the blue that we were no clue that we were going to experience low mood in, in pregnancy or, or postnatally. So I know that this, I could talk for hours about this. So I know that we're on a podcast where people want to be able to take something tangible away. So the first thing I would think about is what is it that you're trying to control in pregnancy? What are you trying to control? postnatally what are you trying to control are you trying to make your child sleep through the night are you trying to make your child eat food it doesn't want to eat what is it the the control is about what is it attached to and know that it can attach to absolutely anything and are you controlling yourself you know what what your body shape looks like a lot of women struggle postnatally because of the expectation that they've had fed by society that we're going to bounce back in this sort of weird I don't know, you can't bounce back, time moves forward. So you can't really go backwards anyway. So it's a sense of that, you know, at the six or eight week check postnatally, you're supposed to have bounced back. Um, before we started this podcast today, I was just saying that I now at sort of around three years postpartum feel pretty much back to my, to myself in some ways. It's taken me three years, not six weeks. And my body is not the same. It's different. It's stronger in a lot of ways, but it doesn't look the same. So I think it's important that we're moving forwards and letting go of that pressure of perfection means I just don't know what that life is going to look like. I don't know what my body's going to look like. And we need to be able to be kind and gentle with ourselves about whatever life throws us. Absolutely. And self-compassion is huge with parenting, isn't mm -hmm. it? That's another thing that you, you discuss. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess um, 
I guess, starting by defining what, what compassion means, can be quite helpful because mm. otherwise it can be something we do as a kind of almost like an Instagram hashtag that is really good to self-care or self-love or yeah. um, be self-compassionate. But we need to think about what that means. Yes. So um, Paul Gilbert, a UK psychologist who developed compassion-focused therapy, has defined compassion as a sensitivity to the suffering of yourself and others with a commitment to try to alleviate it and prevent its return. And what that means is just two parts to that. So the sensitivity to suffering means that I have to figure out what is it that hurts? What's the pain about? What is my suffering about? And that means we can need to be mindfully aware of what's going on in our lives. The second part is that's where we kind of bring in the, the actual compassionate act. So wanting to alleviate our suffering means I want, I, I, not necessarily that I don't want the to pain to be in my life. It's more about how do I soothe myself? How do I look after myself in my suffering? And the thing about parenthood is there's so much of this, the suffering we can't do anything about. You can't make your child sleep when it doesn't sleep. And I think that letting go of that control or that pressure means that we can then think about how do I soothe myself with self-compassion in that. So let's use an example. So self-compassion with those two parts to it, I need to first be mindfully aware of what is it that hurts and then think about what I want to do to soothe myself in that. So let's use an example of uh, my own child. So I I've sometimes talk about this and I've, I've shared a bit around this through the um, through Nourish, the postnatal app for, for mums um, that I'm part of. So on the Nourish account on, on Instagram, they do often campaigns. So we did one around, which was hashtag motherhood, the real deal. Mm -hmm. And I spoke about my experience of dealing with a child with reflux and allergies. So if any of you are listening and you have a, uh, a child with reflux, either silent or not silent, then this is the moment for you to tune in because you cannot control that. And it takes such a toll on you and your mental well-being if you cannot soothe your child. It does not mean that you're not good enough as a parent. It just means that you're dealing with a child who will be very unsettled, very fussy and cry a lot. And it's really unsettling for us as parents to listen to a crying child oh, that yes. will not stop crying. I'm sure most of you will not go, yep, yep, yep. I mm. just, it's, it's awful. It's like nails on the blackboard kind of thing because it's meant to be. It's designed to be. It's designed in our brains so that we will find, oh, that's a screeching noise. I can't tolerate it because that drives us to soothing our child. But so often we forget to soothe ourselves. We go to meet the needs of that baby, pick it up, give it a feed, cuddle it, rock it, sing to it, whatever you feel you need to do to give the baby um, ease in their suffering. We often forget about our own suffering, how hard it is to be a parent to listen to a crying baby. And that can obviously, they, they cry for many different reasons. Sometimes they cry simply because they're going through a developmental leap and their brain is all out of sorts. Um, it's nothing you've done wrong. Sometimes they just cry. And cries are communication. They, they're a communication that they want you to be close and they need that nurture, that soothing. So when we think about self-compassion, is that turning that caregiving mentality, the one that you give to your child, inwards to yourself. So looking after your own needs. So if you might pick your child up and think, you know, your baby or your toddler or whatever, they still cry and they still need our connection. When you pick them up and you soothe them, how would it be if you treated yourself in the same way? If you kind of think, well, of course it makes sense that they're crying because um, they're wet through the nappy. 
that's no one likes to be wet. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That's a sensitivity to the suffering of your baby. And you have a commitment to alleviate that by changing their nappy, putting something new and dry on them, and then maybe, you know, keeping them close and, and rocking them a little bit so that they feel at ease again. We do that for our babies. So that's what I mean about self-compassion, not being something that is fluffy or um, about hashtags, about sort of self-love. Yes, it's great if you can love yourself, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people can barely get to the point where they can tolerate themselves. Self-compassion is about learning to accept and tolerate who you are in those moments where life is really difficult. And that means we have to turn towards our own suffering, towards our own pain. So it's far from nice at times. If if you kind of think about your example of striving for perfection a lot, that might be quite painful to turn towards that and think about, why am I doing that? Where's that come from? What am I hoping to achieve? Sitting to reflect on that, it's not going to be a fluffy, nice journey, is it? <laughs> so I don't know what answers you're going to come up with and if it's something you want to share on your podcast, but actually turning towards our own pain is not an easy choice. So self-compassion is not an easy choice. It's not a fluffy thing we do. It's something we do with courage. So turning towards why am I finding this so bloody hard actually takes a lot of bravery and courage. So this is why I don't think of self-compassion as something that is fluffy, because I think it takes a lot of guts and strength to be able to do so. We're talking more than just a hot bubble bath, aren't we here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's, and I think that's been going around Instagram as well about talking about how self-care isn't selfish. So self-care is not about being fluffy and self-indulgent and having pampering baths. That can be part of a self-care uh, routine if you wanted it to. If, I, if you find I've had such a hard day, you know, the baby took, or the child took ages to go to sleep and all I want to do is just relax with a good book I'm going to get in the bath and, you know, maybe put some nice scent in it. That's then meeting yourself with self-compassion. It's not pampering. It's, it's, it's having that understanding first of what is this pain about? Mm -hmm. We have a sensitivity to that suffering and turn to ourselves by saying, you know, this is really, really hard. This has been going on for months now. I'll be taking two hours to settle them to sleep. I'm knackered. I was about to swear there. I'm knackered. Um, <laughs> I'm a big fan of profanity. Sometimes it gives swear. emphasis. You can swear. I can swear. Words great, great. that come out of my mouth on this podcast. <laughs> that's good. You can swear. Brilliant. So it's that permission to not be perfect. So I guess that's for me is when you get in that bath is how do you do that? If you think I'm going to have a bath because it's self-caring, pampering thing to do, or if it's actually connect first with your pain, mm. this is really, really hard. I'm maybe you're covered in bath or you've had a really difficult feed or your breasts are hurting. If you're if you have a uh, challenging breastfeeding journey, actually turning towards yourself with self-compassion means connecting with that pain first. So this is why when, we, when I teach compassion, I talk about the three parts to compassion. So it's a caring commitment, which means you want yourself to be well, you want other people to be well. And it's a an element of wisdom. So we have to have some sort of insight and clarity around what works, around how the world works. And we have then a sense of strength and courage. So if you think about them, connect them together in a way that's memorable, I'll put them together with three C's, care, clarity, and courage, care, clarity, and courage. Otherwise, it's simply not wise compassion. If you think oh, I'm going to have, I'm just going to sit in the, in the bath every evening and that would be really good self-care. 
in the bath, you're ruminating on all your failures and your mistakes and thinking mm. you're a shit mum. That is not a self-caring activity, mm. nor is it a self-compassionate one. If you're laying into yourself, being really hard on yourself for everything that's gone wrong today, that bath, although it's nice and warm and lovely scented, it's going to do fuck all for you, basically. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm. Completely. So how do you know when all of this, if all of this is adding up and you're unable to, by yourself, start to make some kind of headway with it and really turn, as you're saying, turn towards what's making you feel uncomfortable, how do you know the difference between lacking in Mm -hmm. self-compassion, issues with perfection, to it actually being full-on postnatal depression or baby blues. Can we talk about what the difference is Mm -hmm. and how to know if you're suffering with these and maybe how we can, or first steps to perhaps start to to look at it and deal with it? Yeah, there's obviously a lot of layers in that question, so Mm -hmm. I'll see if I can tease them out. Um, Being on a podcast is almost being on a job interview at times, you're kind of like, what was the interview question? You hold it in mind. And then you're like, can you repeat the question again? What's that second part? Did I answer it all? So, you know, I'll bring that sense of imperfection into everything I I try to do. So if I'm not answering the question, feel free to remind me. And just say, what about that bit? What about that bit? So I think it's really important to use a sense of humor around our, our issues. So I think one question is, what's the difference between them baby blues and postnatal depression? And I think it's important to normalize that, the experience into into motherhood. That for us as women, because uh, I know that a lot of your listeners are women, and it's really important for, for those who are supporting women who have given birth as well. So if you're the partner of a woman who's given birth, it's important to normalize that actually there's a lot of changes in hormones happening in your body when you've just given birth. Mm. There are lots of hormones in pregnancy that peak at the end of pregnancy, and then they get released during birth. But that swap over, if you may, that changeover from hormones can be really unsettling. So around sort of three to four days postpartum, post giving birth, a lot of women feel really sort of tearful, really sensitive. I remember trying to sort of change a nappy and I was at the changing table. And I just couldn't flipping do it. I was just like, I don't understand what what's wrong, what's wrong with me. And then I kind of copped on, oh, this is probably when those hormones are changing and you have that sensitivity. So the baby blues is a normal thing. It's to be expected in a lot of women. Not everyone gets it. But if you do get it, I think it's just keeping a close eye on it and knowing it's not it doesn't last for very long. So self-compassion can sometimes be about being able to tolerate your difficulties, being kind to yourself when you're going through a challenging time. The baby blues aren't supposed to last for more than sort of 10 days, two weeks, something like that. So if you persistently feel really tearful, um, struggling to sleep, even when the baby is asleep, so to speak. You know, we all know that sleep is disrupted by having a child. But if you're struggling to come back to sleep between um, nightly wake-ups, for instance, or you struggle to nap in the day, even when the baby is napping, then that can also be a symptom. If you are really irritable and angry and and kind of short-tempered, it's hard to tease out if that's postnatal depression or if that's simply because you sleep deprived and that makes us really, you know, actually cranky. Mm. So just go easy on yourself and just be trying to use some of that wisdom. If you've had a night where you've been woken up 12 times, then yes, you're going to be irritable the next day. That doesn't mean that you're struggling with postnatal depression. It's more about it sort of being there for more days than not. 
If you're feeling really low in your mood for more days than you're not, for more parts of the day than you are not, it's almost like a cloud that's set in over you, then that might mean that you're struggling with postnatal depression. But it's really, really important to keep in mind that for not everyone presents with this sort of view of being weepy and tearful and sad. That For some people, that's the case. For some people, it's much more about feeling anxious and worried and, you know, what if something's going to happen to the baby or dwelling on, on kind of failings and mistakes you've made. For some people, it's a lot more about anger and irritability. You might be really annoyed with your partner or you might have an urge to scream at your baby. That is also, although we don't talk about it because it feels like a big taboo, but it's a very common experience of postnatal depression, is that the, the connection between you and the baby can be really affected by that, that you might not feel like you like your baby, you might feel like your baby's ruined your life. You might have thoughts that I'm no good at this and if someone had my baby, they would do it better. Maybe I just hand it back to the hospital. And we don't talk about these thoughts because they can be really shame-inducing for the women who experience them. Mm. And shame is something that I'm really passionate about working with because it's a universally shared experience across the globe. Most humans, apart from psychopaths, experience shame. So when we go into motherhood and we have a challenging time, if we then feel, I'm no good at this, I'm a failure as a mum, we experience shame especially if we compare ourselves with other people. So if you find yourself scrolling through Instagram or looking at people's happy posts on Facebook of how their kids are looking really healthy and, and here you're sitting with a child who's just refused another feed or won't eat their uh, won't eat their the, the solids that you've given them when you see all the other pe- babies covered in food, it's that compare and despair. So this is a really important to acknowledging yourself. Am I comparing and despairing? Seeing other people's picture-perfect lives that they've put on social media, where we then can feel really detached from the experience of how hard motherhood is because we see other people's snippets, you know, kind of a snippet of their life. The people don't put out the bits where they, you know, sit on their sofa in the in tracksuit bottoms. They haven't changed for a week with unwashed hair. And the baby's having yet another contact nap and you can't put them down. People then put pictures of that on social media. Um, well, they haven't routinely, but there are accounts of, on Instagram and Facebook that do. So I think it's really important to try to follow influencers who give you that authentic image of motherhood. So don't get just caught up in the picture perfect. So, for instance, um, Labella loves so Joe Love who did a, a campaign uh, a couple of years ago called Depression Wears Lippy. Um, so you can Google Depression Wears Lippy and you'll find it, um, or just go Labella Loves on Instagram. And I think her accounts are really powerful because she talks about how you might not be able to see that someone struggles from postnatal depression because they don't necessarily present with that image that I just gave as well of the unwashed hair and not changing her clothes and not leaving the house. Some of the women I work with, and certainly some of the women I've made friends with over the years, have presented with a really nice facade. Their, you know, the hair is in order. They got the nicest, you know, newest gear for their babies. Wearing heels on a walk, of God knows why. Um, and then they wear lipstick, just because it's our way to control the things that are uncontrollable. Mm. If I can't control my baby, I've had a shit night the house is a tip and I feel like I'm failing at everything, I'll put the lipstick on and I'll leave the house. Mm. So that's something that some women do as a strategy to try to gain the control back. 
And it can be really, really difficult because it masks the underlying problems because they're not daring to be vulnerable enough to say, I'm struggling, I'm really having a hard time. And then they get feedback, which would be stuff like, but you're doing so well and look at, you know, you, you look really nice today. And that reinforces that effort to go for the perfection. So people will then think, oh, but they're doing really well. They're smashing this thing about being a mum. And then they go home and then their own private space, they break down. So that's something I see a lot of where people miss the opportunity to connect with others who are struggling because they paint a perfect picture. And then we're all just sitting in isolation, not talking about how common it is to struggle. Does that make sense as well? I'm it kind of does. coming back to that interview question. Have I, have I answered your interview question? But um, that's sort of how I think of it is that vulnerability feeds connection. So if you're daring to go out and speak to just one mum friend about how hard it is to be a parent, you'll probably, unless they're putting up all their defenses as well, you probably find some connection with their vulnerability too. So someone just has to go first and say, I had such a hard time last night and I'm feeling so worried this morning because I just haven't had any sleep and my, my house is a tip. And one way to concretely do that is to invite people around when your house is a tip. Yes. It's almost like permission, like, oh, right. So this is, the, the, this is how she lives. Fine, I'll invite her around without having to clean everything first. And that can be just the kind of the, the beginning of a really quite a nice friendship between mums mm. because they've laid down that pressure and like, okay, you can be whoever you are and I'm, I'm going to be there for you and support you even when your house is a tip and you've got, you know, leftover food all over the counter. I don't care because we care much more than other people care. I don't know if you've recognized that in yourself that we put different sort of yardsticks for ourselves than we do for other people. We judge ourselves much harder than we judge other people. Oh, absolutely. Does that resonate with you? Absolutely, completely. I, I think I, when I first had my mums some mums over after Amandine was born I thought it would be a really good idea to completely blitz the house and also bake a cake yeah of course because you and have to entertain yeah to be the hostess for the mostess and that's what we did before we had children exactly that's how I've been brought up when you have guests you you know you make your house look presentable you make a cake you welcome them you ask them if they'd like tea and that's what I was used to that's what I've done throughout my whole life I, I never yeah. for one minute thought actually, you know what, I can just shove some tea bags on the side and if they want a cup of tea, they can grab it themselves. And if there's stuff all over the house, it doesn't matter. Now, looking back, mm. I can see exactly what I was doing. Mm. But at the time, you know, and I also didn't really think about how that was going to make the mums feel when they mm. came over to my house. You know, they, since, you know, we, we had that meetup, I mean, we meet up all the time, but I've opened up to them and said, you know, that was really ridiculous how I thought that I needed to do that. And it was just, it was just my previous behavior, kind of what I had been doing before baby shining through. And, you know, thank you for just accepting that that's what I needed to do at that time. Mm. And, and I think that's really important that even that in that statement, you're kind of showing compassion for yourself saying that was just, well, no wonder I did that because mm. that is how I used to show up in my life. And Using phrases like no wonder that or it's understandable that I did that can help take some of the blame off. Because otherwise, if we're going to say to ourselves, why am I doing that? That's crazy. I don't have time to do that. Why do I tidy the house? Well, actually, then we're missing a point of you know, these things have been laid down for decades, mm -hmm. probably. 
Uh, these things are not going to shift in a heartbeat. Mm. And some of us are just going to constantly have that gravitational pull towards wanting it to be perfect, wanting it to be presentable, to not feel ashamed of ourselves. And we kind of have to start slow that with that and just doing what you can. It might be that for you, it might be that you, you don't, you buy biscuits next time. So you might still want to present something, but you're like, all right, I bought these, these are bourbon biscuits from Tesco. So they cost 50p. Here you go. And that, that will be sort of rather than baking the cake, I'll buy something. So taking shortcuts where you can, that doesn't mean that you have to be lobotomizing yourself to be a polar opposite, different person. Cause that's just also not realistic. Sometimes people put a lot of pressure on themselves to let go of that pressure of perfection to the point where that then becomes another expectation to be perfect at being imperfect, Absolutely. if that makes sense. Oh it's a little goodness. bit long-winded, but that's that's what I've seen over the years of working with with high-striving, busy people who who kind of strive for that perfection is that they're then going to be perfect at letting go of it. Mm. And that's just it's just not you. And what gives you a sense of comfort might be that, I know, think about who you were before you had your little one, who's now about a year. What did you enjoy doing beforehand? You know, what kind, how did you enjoy socialising with other people? I used to love just making lots of food. Yeah. <laughs> and baking and, you know, giving my all to people and listening. And I actually find, like, now I don't really have much brain capacity for that anymore and I know that Mm. sounds awful and I feel like a lot of my friends feel you know very neglected but I barely feel like I have the brain capacity for me to focus on the things that I need to get through on a day-to-day basis um but I mean yeah pre-baby I would just love sitting down and talking and listening and you know really being able to interact at some depth with my friends and family and now I just don't feel like I can but that's fine I have over this last year I've come to the understanding that this is where I am right now and that's totally fine you know yeah and that's totally fine I think this is where I'm right now can be really helpful that you know cliches are cliches for a reason and the the statement of sort of this too shall pass Mm -hmm. is a really good one because that will come back you know I can definitely hear myself in where I was around the 12 month mark and I know obviously I'm two years ahead of you that means that I now feel that I can come back I can now start to sort of have capacity for hearing a conversation whilst also having you know the the eyes at the back of my neck wondering what my child is doing and in some ways it gets easier, in some ways it gets harder, like mm-hmm. everything to do with parenthood. There's just faces which are really challenging and it settles into a bit of a, a lull again, sort of like a storm on the ocean and a sort of smooth sailing again for a little while and then another storm. And they just take different natures or the kind of different nature of the beast, really. After a while, you don't have to worry so much about them eating stuff on the floor, but then you worry about them fighting with someone instead. So they're, they're different challenges. But that capacity to hold a conversation will start to come back as, as you know, sleep start to improve at some point. Uh, and again, this is part of not being able to control this. We don't know when we'll get sleep. Um, so being able to accept this is what it is. It is what it is right now. And I just have to do the most I can. But I think something you're saying there really resonates with me around how we think of who we were beforehand. You know, why was it important to you to listen? Why was it important to you to cook food and provide it for people? And if you connect with mm. yourself, why was that important? It, it's who I am, mm. I think. So the aspects of you and how you show up, that we then think of those as our values. So mm. our sets of sort of qualities or aspects to our personality, how we want to be with other people. So you might think of, if you really valued listening, you might think that I'm... 
I'm attentive or I'm supportive or I'm available. Mm -hmm. And how much are we attentive, supportive and available when we're trying to constantly figure out what our one-year-old is is up to? (laughs) Um, We're constantly splitting that attention and like, sorry, what was that thing that you said? And, And they feel you know, misunderstood perhaps or not valued. So no wonder that a lot of us struggle when we think about who we used to be before we had a baby and then coming into that postnatal period where we have absolutely no attention for pretty much anything apart from the baby, we then can't show up in the way we used to beforehand. Mm -hmm. It's harder to, to cook lots of food and provide it, you know, so that's something that was meaningful to you before. You can't do that right now. And then thinking about how you were showing up, listening, being attentive, can't do that right now. So then essentially, it's almost like appreciating our existing friends for tolerating that for a while. We're actually a bit of a shit friend. Exactly. And that's okay. That's sort of part of what motherhood does for us is that baby bubble. For some people, that baby bubble lasts six months. For some, some it lasts three years. I mm. still don't quite feel I've exited mine um, in some ways. I kind of think of motherhood as sort of like one thing I read um, years and years and years ago when I used to be very into heavy metal in my youth, uh, which you wouldn't you wouldn't know now. But, yeah, I was, I was really into metal and I've gone to see all the big metal bands and so on. And I, I read, <laughs> I know, Brilliant. yeah, I used, I used to do photography for an alternative modeling agency where I used to do shoots for, for um, girls who'd be in like music videos and stuff like that. So this is sort of my oh dark my past. Wow. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't know. Um I had different color hair at that point. I'm not, I wasn't blonde. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's in my, in my dark past. But I read something about Alice Cooper. So one of the sort of big rockers, um, he obviously used a lot of substances and he says that he, that their entire albums, he doesn't remember recording because he was just so in a, in a fog in a blur from substances. So he obviously now been sober for like 30 years or so. So he doesn't use anymore, but that's how I think of motherhood. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think, I don't even remember writing that thing. I've had, I had someone who wrote, um, I made a meme out of something I said on social media uh, and shared it, not in a meme in a funny way, but more like an inspirational quote. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, shit, I don't even remember saying that. <laughs> I'm sure that's something I have said. Sounds like something I would say. And it was very kind of him to do that. But I couldn't recall at what point I'd said that and on what post I'd said that because that is what the sleep deprivation fog will do to us. Mm. Our memory is meant to be focused. Our attention is meant to be focused on our children. This is why your brain lets go of everything else that isn't important to your baby's survival. It is not your fault. It is part of motherhood mm. and it will ease. It will pass. So I think just making funny jokes about it, how you've put the keys in the fridge or whatever it is that you do. Yes. And especially if you're trying to balance work with motherhood, for yeah. me, it's sort of, I pride myself in showing up really well with my clients in the moment. I'm so on it. But then if you ask me a week later, I can't always remember what exactly what else I did. So then you have to make, you know, do things to help your mind there, help your brain. So I take extensive notes. I go over them afterwards. I make sure that I put everything in my diary because otherwise it will not happen. So going, looking after yourself again, turning to yourself with compassion. Okay, the sensitivity to my suffering here is that I'm sleep deprived. I'm fully focused on trying to keep this tiny human alive. And that's hard. What can I do to alleviate my suffering? What things do I let go of to have less stuff on my plate when it's so hard to remember even my first name? And and what do I do to kind of help my mind along? So this is how we can use self-compassion in, in the smallest of things. And I guess if there's anything that you're taking away from that, 
uh, what how would could you show up so you can still walk in line with those values of liking to to listen and, and be there for people it might be that okay well then i will when i'm able to I'll record a voice message on on WhatsApp to someone rather than writing an actual normal message. Mm. I'll go over something they've written and just really like, okay, I'll I'll write, I'll um, record a two minute message so that they feel a little bit more validated. And you you can send that whenever you want to. So you might not be able to really fully engage with what they're saying in that moment. But I, I don't know how it's like for you, but afterwards I would often, someone has gone home, you had a play date, it's all mayhem and you're like, oh, and they just mentioned this new job they're going to start. And I didn't even ask any follow-up questions. Completely. Following that up with a message afterwards, like, oh, it's really nice to see you today. Sorry, I was, um, wasn't was able to ask you more about your work. I would love to hear more about it. It doesn't have to happen in the moment. You can repair afterwards and say, I would love to hear more about it. And just tolerating that basically your connection is kind of a deconstructed um, bits and pieces here and there kind of conversation. And that's good enough. And it's not just us as women that can feel this whole life change. I mean, a huge change goes on for the partner, whether that may be Mm -hmm. a man, a woman, maybe a single, you may be a single mum. But let's talk about men for a moment here. Mm -hmm. And is it possible for men to get some form of obviously not postnatal but post baby depression Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely and I think it's really important to acknowledge there like you're saying that a setup around a baby can look in many different ways you know sometimes you're a single parent and for a lot of people we're two parents but they might be you know in some cases they're two females sometimes it's two men so definitely the postnatal journey can affect us in very different ways regardless of how our family setup looks and and in terms of who's actually involved in that picture you might have someone who uh, intended to be a single parent the the father of the child perhaps wasn't involved and suddenly becomes involved or vice versa they intended to be involved and then they have left so we have a lot of we have to have a lot of sensitivity around how the setup of a family can change and how their relationship can change. So when we think about men in in birth, then yes, we do know there's a lot of research around how they are also affected by by what happens there. So uh, men who've been involved in the birth, there's some, some research showing that they're more involved in the relationship as well, that they feel a little bit more in control. So having been uh, been a birth partner for instance that gives you a lot of sensitivity to what the woman has gone through if you look at a heterosexual couple mm. um, and we also know that men who've been involved in the delivery room and, and having that first contact with the baby that that can really settle the baby as well so having chest to chest or skin to skin with the with the dad is is really important as well because dads get that surge of oxytocin too. We didn't know that decades ago. We thought it was just the mums who get the sort of the love hormone or kind of the cuddle hormone as we talk about. Um, so the oxytocin being our bonding hormone was secreted when we're having let down for a breastfeed, mm. uh, when we're having an orgasm, where we're progressing through labour. And we now know that dads get that too. So it's really, really important to not let, leave them out of the picture and think it's just mum and baby because oxytocin is really powerful in soothing our threat so if we're really stressed out we're really anxious and lots of adrenaline going in our bodies lots of cortisol which is a stress hormone what can really soothe both baby and parent is to have some skin to skin settling down 
dropping all the musts and shoulds, like we said earlier, you know, I, I should clean the kitchen. Well, I could clean the kitchen, but I could also sit here for a moment with my baby and just have a cuddle. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to let the men into that equation, to leave them in or to lead them into the physical contact, especially when we've had a lot of issues around, you know, worrying about what's kind of inappropriate touch. And I think we have to be sensitive to that, um, to those who've experienced childhood sexual abuse, for instance. But that's the minority. The majority of parents have no such wishes to be harmful towards their children. And I think we're really missing a trick where we're not letting everyone be as closely touching uh, their babies as they want to. Mm-hmm. So dads have instincts too, to, to protect and to be nurturing and nourishing. So I think it's really important to allow them into that because they can often feel left out. There's a lot of focus on the mum, rightly so, because she's gone through a, a, an, an immense transition. But we need to think about how does this affect the man. So in, in heterosexual couples, this puts a lot of pressure on the, the, the man to be the provider, to go out to work. Suddenly there might only be one income. Um, if if in kind of most, oh, I should put it statistically speaking, in most cases in the UK, because of the parental leave we have, in most cases it tends to be the man who goes back to work and the woman who stays at home with the baby. Uh, and that's also to do with wider discussions around the gender pay gap. So it's too broad for this this podcast right now. But um, if you're interested in learning more about that, then Google pregnant then screwed and uh, a whole world of possibilities will open up for you. But for most couples, that tends to be the case. And that means there's an immense financial pressure on the man to then feed these two mouths. Uh, and it might be that physically, sometimes he has to literally feed the woman because she's feeding the baby. So although there can be a hugely positive experience for a man to feel like I'm now protecting and looking after these two two, two people I love. It can be a lot of pressure to get that right. Mm. Um, and then to come home from work and see someone who's struggling and you know that you've been, you've been away from them all day. So you might've had frantic text messages about the things that the baby or the toddler is doing, but knowing you're powerless, you can't do anything to ease it because you still need to go to work to make that money. And I think we have to sit sit in that position as well with sensitivity and not kind of get into a comparison game of who has it worse. Because yes, it's horrible to be the person who's at home looking after a baby who's struggling, but it's horrible to be the person who's away from uh, your loved one and the baby who's struggling and not being able to help them. It's just horrible in different ways. So I think if we start with that sensitivity to the suffering and knowing that the partners experience the suffering in different ways, we can step out of this but it's easier for you because you get to leave. Uh, and yes, it's nice to be able to go to work where you can take lunch whenever you want and, you know, have a wee without being watched. <laughs> but but it has its price. You know, it's, it's nice. And I think I for, I, for one, definitely got caught up in that in, in my relationship because my child was such a sort of um, high, high needs, high contact baby. I never got to put him down. I never got to rest. I would look at my husband with envy of, but you get to leave. And it's only when sort of that fog settled a bit, it was more possible for me to think about actually how much pressure has has he been under, but in a just very different way to me. And I think if you love someone, knowing that you're leaving them behind in chaos, that, you know, the chaos of having a, a young baby can be, be quite difficult. 
And I think that must be very upsetting to then have to go to work and have to focus on your work for an entire day and maybe have your boss laying into you because you're sleep deprived as well, perhaps. Mm. And I think we, we have to also keep in mind of the image that men are supposed to live up to in society today still, even though we're the, the conversation is opening up for um, for men's mental health. It's still the image of trying to be stoic, stiff up a lip, you know, keep calm and carry on all of that stuff the sort of post-war mentality really that makes it really hard for men to open up and say i'm struggling too because they're often faced with you're struggling or look at your wife she's having a harder time isn't she so i think if we are sensitive to the fact that the biggest cause of death for men under 45 is suicide we have to bring in the dads in the conversation as well and there are some great accounts on Instagram as well where you can where you can kind of if you put in sort of a father's mental health as hashtags, you will find stuff on that as well because they, they matter too. Absolutely. If they fall down, then also who's going to look after and financially provide for the family in that setup. So, yeah, that's I could talk about this for ages because I think it's it's definitely a conversation that I've had with myself when I've joined things like uh, Nourish, the, the postnatal app for women uh, and motherdom. Uh, which is a magazine for mothers' mental well-being. Like, where are the dads? Where are the dads? And I think it's it's so challenging to have that conversation whilst also not alienating the women who feel that. But what about me? Yeah. So I can't even go through this life-changing journey without it being about men as well. So I think that we all need help. It's not one or the other. Mm. It's not if I give space for a woman to talk about her postnatal journey. That does not mean that I want to exclude the man. Or if I bring the man into that conversation, it doesn't mean that I take away the suffering from what the woman has gone through, if that makes sense. It's just making space for everyone's experience and how different they are. Absolutely. And and this can put a huge toll on your relationship as a couple, as partners, as man and wife, can't it? And your your dynamic. I mean, not only the, the, the huge change of bringing your baby in, but also, you know, figuring out the new balance of how life is now going to work and what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I know that's one of the things we wanted to kind of think about is any pointers to help people manage that transition into mm. parenthood uh, for couples. And I think my biggest tip would be to keep in mind that when there is expectation, disappointment often follows. So if you have an expectation of how life should be with you, you and your partner, then you often feel disappointed. If you have an open mind to think whatever will be, will be, I just don't know how this is going to affect us. If you can tolerate that you are just essentially living life light and dark at the moment, you might be now in for a bit of the darkness. Statistically speaking, the first year of the first child's life is the hardest strain on, on the couple's relationship across the lifespan. So you know that actually this is going to probably, if we're thinking this is a long-term commitment, this is going to be us facing a quite a hurdle at the moment. How are we going to get through that together as a team? How are we going to try to choose to show up in a way that's as kind as possible? And I've even got like a little notice board on my fridge at home on the side of the fridge. So it's not as obvious to guests coming around for a cup of tea, but <laughs> it's obvious to us when we come out of the toilet. Have I been kind today? Uh, and I put it in my husband's name, my name, and my son's name. Because that means, obviously my son can't read it just yet, but it means that me and my husband were thinking both about how we've been kind to each other and to our child and how we've been kind to ourselves. Mm. So it's a little just visual reminder of have I been kind today to myself and to my partner? If I would speak to my partner, you know, if you think about your early days of dating, if you would have spoken to your partner 
at that point, the way that we sometimes speak to them now, would we get like a third date? Oh, Probably not. not. <laughs> Probably not. Because <laughs> they would think, how dare you speak to me that way? Um, but we get comfortable into it and we, we dare to show all of ourselves, which means mm-hmm. we show our imperfect, cranky, frazzled selves as well. And I think if we keep in mind that this is going to be a hard phase, but it will pass, if we try to at least at times choose to reconnect with us as a couple doing bits and pieces that we used to like so and a big challenge for a lot of couples uh, in in society today is that they often parent in isolation so that they might not get a lot of social support might not get babysitting so then it's making the most of what you've got so if you can't leave the house because your child is asleep upstairs hopefully asleep then what can you do mm. you know we used to go to pub quizzes and play board games and things like that when we were younger when we were uh, unmarried and childless so we've got ourselves a bunch of um, charity shop board games and we, on the nights where we feel we have some sort of mental capacity, mm-hmm. we might play a game. And then the nights where we feel, you know, I'm too tired, I can't be bothered, then we allow ourselves to just pick an episode of something that we like to watch on Netflix. You just try to make it meaningful. So it's not just scrolling through whatever's on telly and then you argue about who's going to get to choose. Just beforehand you decide this is the series we're going to watch and we're going to watch one episode and maybe have a chat about it afterwards that's connecting about something that isn't about your baby for an hour and that's really important to just make space for you too as adults the things you used to like before you had to start talking about um you know nappy rashes and you know unsexy things like that because that's part of being a parent but making space for you too and reconnecting with those values like you mentioned maybe entertaining, hosting people, making lots of food, really listening, connecting to yours, those values you had before you became a parent. And what's meaningful to you now? Who do I want to be now? It might be that the parenthood journeys helped you come up with other things you think are important. You know, I've been outside in the woods so much with my child. Now I really like to go on a hike. That's okay too. Mm. Um, it's just, if you as a couple can think that this is a dynamic journey and that we're going to keep growing and keep changing in our life, if I keep getting to know my husband or my or my wife, then I can figure out what's important to them. If my partner suddenly has a new interest, then can I be curious about it? Can I get some of that clarity? Can I show up with some care? And can I have the courage to to stand by them? So, so yeah, that's find, sort of where I think about it. Yes, absolutely. And it's about finding time as well. Cause I, I mean, I find the one of the hardest things, I mean, Hendrik and I, um, have never been the best communicators and sometimes I put that down to him being French and then sometimes I put that down to <laughs> me not wanting to listen and also that we just especially with Amandine now my daughter I I find we just don't have the time almost and when something comes up for us that that we both feel like we really need to talk about this we find it very difficult to find that time when we're both in a place where we have the headspace to talk about it and without being able to kind of, you know, say to Amandine, please just go in your, please just stay in your room for a moment whilst we um, have an adult chat about this. That's just not possible, is it, right now? At the no, and it's and, and two years down the line, that's still not quite possible. No. So uh, I think we just have to tolerate that all those discussions are going to be imperfect. Either they will have to be parked until you know, in in the evening where both of you probably shattered anyway, mm. or they will have to be done in an imperfect way, almost in, in code. Mm. Uh, so you can do it sort of in front of the child um, or having a conversation whilst you're all sitting down eating together. And that, I think that's part of the parenting puzzle that's really, really difficult to figure out when do we have time to properly talk. Mm. So it's about making that commitment that, you know, if, if this is something we do have to just decide on, 
then writing it down on a big post-it note and sticking that on the on the table so that whoever's doing bedtime when they're coming down like okay right we're going to talk about this now and then it might be important to kind of set some sort of time limit to it that we're going to spend we're going to spend 20 minutes on this and see how far we get and then we will have to just park it so that we also get to do something that's maybe nice and nourishing for ourselves and that can mean it's, it's it's not as daunting. Okay, we're going to communicate about this for twenty minutes, and then we'll, uh, you know, then we'll have dinner, or then we will, you know, watch something on TV. It's a bit better way to kind of like okay, let our minds rest a bit. So it's it can also be really helpful to do it when if you're if your child is young enough to nap, and if they're doing so, say in the buggy, then going out for a walk together. You know, you can do that in a secluded area of the woods, something where a lot of people actually find it easier to communicate when they're walking um, rather than sitting down staring at each other. And doing it sort of in a semi-public place means that you kind of have to keep the tone civil enough where you actually might be able to solve your problem. So if you're out um, sitting in a cafe, you might find that, okay, well, then I have to keep sort of calming myself down enough to be able to get my point across rather than like throwing a scene in the cafe Whereas when you're home, it's easy enough to get into the door slamming kind of uh, mode. Absolutely. Does that make sense? I think it's it's important to tolerate it's it's not going to be like it used to be. You're going to have to resolve your issues in other ways than you did before you became a parent. Absolutely. I mean, I find what one of the, the main things that we struggle with is expectations and just managing the expectations of we have that we have of each other yeah um, absolutely and it's important to think about what which expectation is coming from me internally about mm-hmm. my own standards that I feel I need uh, and must and I think we think a lot about masturbation I must 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 meet these standards and what if it is coming from an external source where I feel that I need to live up to that otherwise there will be criticism um, and I think that's really important why I, and also why I work with compassion on, on several levels of how we're turning it inwards for ourselves to suit those kind of high standards, but also turning it outwards by using compassionate communication and trying to explain to each other, why is it meaningful for me if I come home to a clean house? Or why is it meaningful for me for you to not have a pressure around me cleaning when I might have been you know, stuck under a baby all day. Mm. So I think it's important to kind of just open up that discussion in a careful way. But for some couples, there is also societal pressures where they have norms of how they think the the gender roles should be distributed. And that's not something we can solve in a heartbeat. Mm. So I think it's important one way to in, in those relationships where there might actually be inequality or in, inequity, I sometimes connect that to the values you might have for your child. How does your, you know, without making it too personal, but how does your husband want your your little girl to grow up? Mm. How does she, what kind of values does she, he want her to grow up with? Um, you know, to be, say, a strong, independent woman or to be able to follow her dreams and do what she wants or, you know, what kind of relationship does he want her to get into? Because it starts with you two. You're modeling the way that you want your child to grow up. Um, you're modeling by your gender roles you're modeling how she can enter a relationship as well. Would he want her to uh, grow up if she's if she's straight, meet a man um, where she will do all the work as well as her own work, you know, do all the household chores as well as her own career? Most men say, no, of course not. Then actually it starts with you. Mm. You have to show that how you're treating your child's mummy shows to your child that this is how we respect women. Mm. Maybe get him to listen to the podcast afterwards. Oh, totally. <laughs> But it also sounds like 
it sounds like you are very much like those women I love working with who we put so much pressure on ourselves that we just never get any pause to reflect on what is important to us and mm. uh, you know kind of connecting with our purpose figuring out how we want to be and how we want to show up and what values we want our children to grow up with and then also making some place making some space for play you know how are we able to have more fun and playfulness in our lives where it's not so much about achieving but also about just enjoying ourselves and savoring the good parts and i know we're kind of coming to the end of our our time together today and i think that's why i created day retreats for people who put a lot of pressure on themselves so i've i've called this pause purpose play because so many women and men I see put so much pressure on themselves to be perfect that they just miss out on those kind of quite enjoyable aspects of life. Mm -hmm. And especially in parenthood where we just don't have any break for ourselves. So I created a day retreat, um, the the next one coming up on the 26th of October, just outside of Bedford. And there'll be information about that on my website. And I also teach couples how to develop compassion for each other as well as for themselves so i'm the next course and i run over eight weeks so it's a couple of hours uh, a week on a thursday evening in london it's coming up on the 24th of october and then i do all sorts of things i run i run webinars uh, which are free of charge because i just want to spread the word to people on how we can be more compassionate in our relationships so and then apart from that, I also work one to one with people. So people come in for couples therapy or individual therapy where you go a bit deeper. Um, but for some people, having a course is a really nice way to kind of get get a lighter option where you might not work so so closely one to one. It's also cheaper to do courses compared to working one to one. So that's sort of how I help people. And I know that was. Um, throwing it all in at the end here because I'm just quite conscious that I have to end the podcast very shortly so I wanted to make sure that people get an idea of how how I could be of service and I'm also always willing to give someone you know a 20 minute chat on the phone I don't charge for those sometimes people just connect with me have a chat and then they get a couple of pointers of what they could do and then they never come back and that's completely fine too like it's it's I love working with people um over a longer period of time but sometimes people just need to have a couple of pointers and mm. listen to a podcast can be helpful in that way but sometimes it's just booking that call and think you know what can I do and what can I work on and and then they take that away and there might be another year and then they come back and then you know that's that's fine too so if you want to have a chat with me you can just follow me on one of my social media channels under the Thomas Connection or you can drop me a message on the Thomas Connection website and just book a call that way and we'll share that link in the show notes so head to the link if you um want to get in touch with Michaela Michaela thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with us today thank you so much for having me And there we have it. What a fantastic conversation starter with Michaela Thomas. If anyone has any questions from this podcast, please, please, please email me at mumtalkpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on mumtalkpodcast on Instagram. I look forward to catching up with you guys next week. Have a lovely rest of your week. Lots of love. Mum Talk Series 5 is supported by Bugaboo, a world of innovative products that give every parent the confidence and freedom for the journey ahead. So visit bugaboo.com forward slash mumtalk to learn more and choose the pram, pushchair, stroller, car seat or accessory to suit your lifestyle.